Neil, Neil Tregarthen, thank you for coming on the podcast today. You're welcome. Um, local businessman, um, you've got an inspirational story behind uh, leaving Cornwall and going up to the big smoke, um, set up a, a business, successful business, um, turning over a lot of money, um, and now you've made a conscious decision to come back down to God's country and uh, spend the rest of your time. No, my wife made that decision. Oh, she... <laughs> um, so, Neil, I just wanted to uh, start off with, you know, I think, did you grow up in, in Penzance, was that right? Yeah, born and bred in Penzance. And how was that for you? How was life as a young man in Penzance? Um, well, I, I came from a pretty dysfunctional family background, to be honest. So even though the environment going to the grammar school in Penzance was fabulous, it wasn't fabulous at home. So that kind of forever tinged my view about Cornwall right. staying, going, etc. Um, so, yeah, the environment was fabulous. You can grow up in a better place than West Cornwall. But if you don't have that kind of pastoral influence on your life, it can be tough. Yeah. And so that, that was your motivation to, to move away um, was there a was there a specific idea you had in mind, or was it just I need to get away from Cornwall? No, no. I um, I got to the point when I was eighteen that I just needed to get away from the environment I've just described. So yeah, yeah. I didn't much care where it was. Um, London appeared to be a logical um, place to go because of the opportunity. Um, my first proper girlfriend had just dumped me. Um, and it was time to make a move, so so right. I did. I got on the train and and arrived in Paddington. And uh, what was that like stepping off the off onto the platform? Uh, exhilarating, but then um, as the backstory goes, you know, I had two hundred pounds in my pocket. I didn't have a job. I didn't have anywhere to live. And you know, if it weren't for a, a taxi driver who um, I told him my story and after he concluded that I should go back to Penzance to which I said that isn't an option <laughs> he, um, he he found me some accommodation with his wife bless her who was a housekeeper in a West End hotel so I lived in a uh, in a linen cupboard for a couple of weeks while I sorted myself out Wow and obviously that just grew your motivation I guess being in that situation to to become as successful as you can be? Well, I, I mean, you know, if you the, you can't get half pregnant doing what I was doing. So I remember walking down um, to South Kensington Tube on the next day, which was a Sunday, and thinking that every girl was a pretty girl. Uh, and I knew I was in the right place. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we've, we've obviously started um, arriving in London and you had, you know, a couple of quid in your pocket. Um, how did how did you get into creating a a business to start with? Was it was there someone that gave you an idea, or was there? No, I mean I just needed a job, um, so um, I just needed a job somewhere permanent to live, and so right. everything, every decision at that stage is very functional, um, and so I found a job. Uh, first of all, I got a job with Midland Bank International uh, in the city of London. And then I met some friends and we saw it at a flat share. I lived in Palmer's Green N13 um, and just pieced my life back together again as a young man earning some money and, and seeing what the world had to offer. At that point, I had no 
perception um, or even at that point thoughts about creating you know a business that ultimately would would be sold and you know deliver a few quid yeah um, it, it must have been quite daunting you know being away from home um, obviously you haven't got your familiar surroundings around you um, but, you know that's quite daunting for anyone it would be for for me you know going there as a, as a young young man yeah, but I think you have to look at the backdrop of what I came from. So first of all, I wasn't missing home. I was deliriously happy to be out of it. <laughs> right. um, secondly, yeah, there were, I was missing a lot of friends from um, from Cornwall, but you have to go make your own. Uh, and thirdly, you know, it's fine to say, well, I don't know how you managed it, but in my view, I didn't have a choice. So if you don't have a choice, you have to get on and manage. Yeah. And um, when you consider what... Um, millions of young people did through two world wars and walking down you know to south kensington tube with every girl being pretty didn't seem like too onerous task to me <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I see your point <laughs> um so uh, obviously things started to look a bit more brighter for yourself um and where where did the where did the business journey start for the what company did you start what was it well i, I after uh, my initial job which was Midland Bank International, went fine. I really enjoyed it. In fact, that's where I met Amanda, my wife, still of today, um, who's a true Essex girl. I was clearly focusing on the areas of greatest opportunity. Um, and um, it's starting to make all of my formative years sound very sexual, actually. <laughs> um, so, uh, but after a while, I got a bit bored, and then um, I was ambitious, wasn't earning enough money in my book, um, got a job selling life assurance and savings plans like over the telephone which is the hardest sales environment you could ever be in um, we'd spend the first two hours of every day in the office and we literally weren't allowed to sit down and we weren't allowed to put the phone back in the cradle and we would just simply dial people out of the phone book cold and talk to them about whether they needed life assurance and savings plans and most of them told you that they didn't in a very certain way um, <laughs> but great grounding um, then I got sick for a while, couldn't work. Um, that job disappeared, so I decided just to find any job again that would pay the rent, because obviously at that point I had some commitments. So I started washing cars for a um, car rental company in Kensington. Um, that moved on to, did a bit of selling for them, did a bit of driving joined another car rental company called Guy Salmon. All of a sudden I found myself looking after 20 delivery drivers and that just put me on a management course, but more by accident than design. But still, I was employed. I wasn't working for me. Of course, yeah. And is that what you, that, was that the goal to work for yourself? Well, I kind of figured at, at a reasonably early stage that you can have, and I had, you know, two or three great corporate jobs. Um, so I was operations director for... Europe Car, which was the, one of the biggest car rental companies in the world at that point. Um, I got a great job at the British Airports Authority, looking after a lot of the concessions at the seven BAA airports. Um, I worked for um, Hayes, which then was the 60th biggest company in the UK, running the mail delivery business, first business to ever get a license to compete with Royal Mail. So, and in the Hayes job, you know, I was paid a lot of money and I had share options, but, um, it wasn't going to give me what I really aspired to. And then 
on the 1st of January 1989, we had our first child and Callum was born with Down syndrome, which we found out two minutes after he was born. And that was a complete game changer because at that stage, um, I had to make a pledge that his siblings would never have to put their hands in their pockets to look after him because that would have been wrong in my book, even though I'm sure, bless their hearts, the two of them would have been more than happy to have done that. So I had to take that out of play. And that meant working effectively where the lion's share of the reward went to us and not to public limited companies. Right, okay. So that was the true start of the journey towards, as I say, working for us and delivering the kind of financial returns that I thought that Callum and in turn the family would require in the future. Yeah. And so how old, how old is he now? Then he's Callum's 32 now. 32, yeah. Yeah, lives in um, literally next door to us in the house next door, which we also own um, with his full-time care team. Um, he's very happy. Uh, delirious to have his own property because he knew that we'd bought a house for his brother and sister. Right. Um, what he doesn't quite understand is we bought them kind of starter homes and Callum lives in a £2 million house with a £5 million view, which he never looks out the window <laughs> at. But there we go. <laughs> um, he's, uh, he's, he's happy and content and I uh, wouldn't change it for the world. So, yeah, very lucky then. Very lucky. Yeah. Um, so... What would you say the, the key behind um, the success from your business point of view, from where you got to um, at the height of your career? Uh, working hard um, and having a bit of luck. I think if you work hard and you get a bit of luck, you're in with a chance. Create it doesn't, your own luck. Yeah. yeah. But it doesn't deliver... That's not a cast iron guarantee, but what I can tell you is that without working hard, there's a cast iron guarantee that you'll fail. So that seems to me to be a logical starting point. Uh, And I guess the third thing I'd throw in there is an unstinting belief in what you do and why you do it. Because the world is full of doubters. A part of your podcast chain here is about belief and perhaps a lack of belief from some people in the area that we live in, in terms of what you're capable of. I didn't ever, ever for one minute lack that belief. I lacked some clarity about how I could deliver what I wanted to, but I didn't ever for a second lack the belief that it was possible. And I think that's key. Yeah, definitely. If you have any doubts, then you're already holding yourself back, aren't you? Well, I mean, if you if you tell yourself you can't do something, you're 100% certain of success uh, because you won't. Mm. Um, you're lying to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, obviously, that was a couple of key factors into how it got to where it got to. Um, what was it like when you've got to the, you know, your prime in your career? What was it like as a, as you for you as an individual? What was it like to to feel like you're on top of the world or um, well, I, or did I, you just I, not see it like that? Or? No, I mean, there's some key parts of that, that journey. So after um, Amanda and I had Callum, I decided to give up my highly paid job at Hayes PLC and give up all the share options and, and take a year out and go and do an MBA because I wanted to work in the world of private equity and I didn't have a first degree and I didn't think I was credible. 
So to answer your question, you've got to paint the picture of the sacrifices that were made beforehand. So, you know, I spent a year studying. Uh, I was at home for a year and I drove a man up the wall, um, but came out of it with a great qualification from Henry Management College, which allowed me to go and try and get into the private equity world. Somebody told me at that point that of 100 people who try and get into private equity, three of them, only three of them get a job and only two of them lead a successful exit and sell a business for a lot of money, to which my response was, well, I just have to be one of the two then, which goes back to my point about self-belief earlier on. So long, you know, if you fast forward that, I ended up working in private equity for 15 years and the business that we built, which was NES Global Talent, we sold in 2012 for 234 million pounds. I hasten to add, I didn't get all of that money. Um, lots of it went to the investors, of course. But at that point, coming back to your question, you kind of think, well, great, what's next? Or I did. Yeah. So, so your, your life was leading up to that point and it's sort of like there's nothing on the other end. Yeah, it's everybody looking forward to Christmas and then there's a huge sense of, well, it's Boxing Day, what happens now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was a bit like that. It, it's, you know, I remember um, putting my cash card into the machine in the wall because I wanted to see my bank balance. And it came out and it didn't, it sounds horrible, but it, it's true and it's funny. It didn't print all the numbers because it couldn't because there wasn't enough space on the little piece of paper. <laughs> um, and I walked and I did that. It was in the Strand in London. And I walked back down the Strand and sat down in Cafe Nero and had a cup of coffee and kept looking at this tiny little slip of paper. And bizarrely, I wasn't overjoyed or excited or delirious. I was thinking geez, that's the end of such a journey. Yeah. And, and um, what was I then? Um, blimey, 54. So what am I going to do now? But I guess that's just the way I made it. It's, it's about done that. Yeah. What's next? And what was, what was next after that then? What, did you decide to just come straight back or was it just... No, I, I said to um, Amanda, so... You can, you know, we're in the fortunate position now that, you know, you can buy a house, you know, anywhere in the world. Um, you can't buy Buckingham Palace, but you can buy a house anywhere in the world. Where do you want to live? And she said, let's go to Cornwall. Good choice. And I went, what on earth would I want to go to Cornwall for? <laughs> That's where all my family are. Um, and I left that uh, back in um, when, I was, when I was 18, 19. Uh, but anyway, as always happens women get their own way when it comes to such domestic issues so yeah may 2013 so nine months or so after we sold the business we bought a house in in a stronger point and then i was still working because I, I needed to do a couple of years so i was traveling up and down from london but ostensibly yeah we moved back to to cornwall in early 2013 so obviously you've moving moving away do you, would you and you had a few quid in your, in your bank that you can't actually see because it doesn't print all the numbers. But um, do you, what do you do? You invest in that? Uh, well, the world has changed from um, 2012, really. So 
I mean, the, the credit crisis in 2008, 2009, I think, amended the way that people saw their future investment life, if you like, because all of a sudden it wasn't about getting huge returns, it was just getting your money back. And in 2008, 2009, you know, the stories are rife of huge enterprises that failed uh, and where investors lost a lot of money. So my view, to answer your question directly, was I wasn't concerned about creating a huge return on the capital that we'd put together, but I was absolutely paranoid about not losing a pound of it. Right. So you wanted to play safe. Yeah, because I'd, you know, I, we had worked so hard and there had been so much pain along the way and, and sacrifice and everything else. You know, Amanda brought up three children on her own, ostensibly. She was a single parent. I was there and, and delivered a few quid every month to the bank account, but she had to bring up three children, one with special needs on her own. So, you know, forget me for a second. That's just such an amazing achievement and produced three fabulous young people. Um, so, you know, there's lots that goes into it. And as a consequence of that, you just don't want to see a pound of what you worked hard for disappear. No. And I'm not greedy. I don't need it to, to double my money, but I don't want to see any of it go backwards. Yeah, I, I, I don't like gambling. And that's probably one of the reasons. I, I prefer to not lose a pound and gain 10 pounds. Yeah. That's how I see it. I just cannot. Which is ironic because I love going to Vegas. But, oh, <laughs> um, but um, that's, that's my little play pot, if you like. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. So obviously, um, the situation is a little bit different for yourself but you know other people that want to say that you know someone came into a few quid and they wanted to invest that you put your money into a safe investment but what, what like some people don't make good investments do they well no because uh, and I've had a number of um of our players at the cricket club Penzance Cricket Club talking to me about um Bitcoin, etc., and how yeah. exciting they think it is. And yeah. I, my response is, how much do you know about cryptocurrencies? And the answer is, you could write it on the back of a postage stamp. And then they say, but how much do you know? And I go, no, I, I have the same level of, or the same lack of knowledge as you do. The difference is, you want to invest in cryptocurrencies, and I don't. Hmm. And I don't, because I would never invest in anything that I didn't truly understand. And that's where people go wrong. They do all sorts of things with, with money or with house equity proceeds or whatever it may be, but they don't truly understand what they're going into. Mm. So if you decided to invest in a new gas appliance, that would be sensible because you're a gas engineer. But if you decided that you wanted to enter the world of cryptocurrency, I'd say you're an absolute lunatic. Yeah. Because unless you know the subject, why risk your money? Yeah, exactly. Um, do, like, do, you know, like when you, you know, as kids in school, they, they never really get taught about finances, do they? They, you know, you don't get, uh, well, I didn't anyway, don't know about yourself, but you don't really understand money, do you? When you come out of school and you, you go and get a job and you earn a few quid, um, people don't really know how to manage money. And... Obviously, I think that can also be for people that have a, few, a lot of money as well, being not able to manage money so well. 
Well, if you just look at professional footballers, professional footballers have agents and advisors, but you know the, the history books is full are full of uh, footballers, football managers who have invested in things which have turned out not only to not make a return, but actually to end up in litigation from the inland revenue, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. So you don't get me wrong i don't think everybody has to be a financial professional but you have to have some level of interest in what's going on and if you do then i would suspect that things generally will turn out okay and if you leave it to other people and you don't truly understand what is going on with your money then i don't think that's a great recipe for success but i mean i think that's logical to be honest with you yeah um, and you're right, at school, even now, I don't think there is enough attention given to the financial consequences of being an adult. No. Uh, and they can happen very quickly, particularly in these days where, for young people, immediacy of reward is, is, appears to be essential now. Yeah. I, I, I knew that I'd have to work for 30-odd years and work very hard to deliver what I aspired to. I'm not sure that the young cohort of people today see the same situation. I, all I see is immediate reward and gratification, and life is not like that. I think, yeah, life and, like, the value of things have changed. I think people want everything, like, now, yeah. don't they? You know, the times of going out and earning money and putting it away for a certain thing, a car or, you know a new computer or something like that, you, you go, right, that's what I want to do and I'm going to put that money away until I can afford it. Whereas now you can, you know, you can get a line of credit. Yeah. No problem, can't you? And then before you know it, you've got all these toys. Yeah. And when you actually need to pay for something, people struggle with that. It's, yeah. It's what you need against what you want. Yeah, and, and the world was brought to its knees in 2008 and 2009. The world was brought to its knees. Lehman Brothers failed, you know absolutely stratospheric things happened in 2008 2009 because credit markets were completely stuffed mm. and and a lot of it is what you just described it was people having stuff that in the long term they were never going to be able to pay for yeah and you only need a shock to the economy and one thing leads to another and and you know i had a business in 2008 2009 that was incredibly successful we were four weeks away from going out of business because we couldn't create the credit lines that we needed to run it because the credit markets had, dr had dried up mm. and that was a scary four weeks which ultimately we took care of but it shows that you know it's the old thing about a butterfly flaps its wings in Amazonia and you know there can be a, a hurricane in Indonesia it's that kind of impact and that's what credit does yeah and I'm not saying there's no room for credit. In fact, private equity is based on generating credit to leverage your investments, but uh, it needs to be sensible. And I think, to your point, if people aren't educated in what sensible looks like at school, yeah. then when they become adults and all of a sudden are in the big wide world, it can go, it can go very wrong. Definitely, definitely. Um, you know, like going back to people wanting everything now, do you, do you think money... I watched a podcast the other day, um, a guy who's successful and financially, um, and he was talking about, like, happiness and 
like money making you happy? Do you think money makes you happy or uh, it opens up opportunities for happiness? It doesn't make you happy because the only thing that really makes you happy is being healthy. And the reason I say that is you can have as much money in the world if tomorrow somebody says you've got a terminal condition, you're not very happy anymore. So I think in the hierarchy of, of needs for happiness, if you like, then health has to come first. But I would be corrupt enough to suggest that money comes pretty close to it afterwards because it gives you options and it gives you choices and it gives you opportunity and particularly as we've discovered as a family it gives you the chance to and this sounds holier than that but it does give you the chance to try and help other people and if there is a key driver to happiness I would say it's the feeling that you get when you have helped other people who are less fortunate than yourself mm. and I know that sounds like I'm looking for an MBE tomorrow, um, which would be great, but, um, <laughs> but it is an actual fact. And anybody will know, even if they've been into the supermarket and an elderly person has dropped their frozen peas and they pick them up and put them in the basket and they've got that lovely smile and thank you, that's so kind, they'll know how that makes you feel. So mm -hmm. if you imagine if you scale that up and you try and do that most of your days, which is one of the things we try and do through the family charity, that is a true driver of happiness. Yeah, helping other people. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, with obviously, you know, you, you helping other people um, and you come in, you're coming back to um, your grassroots in, in Cornwall. Do you think that um, there's any jealousy towards what you've created for yourself, the success? <laughs> Because um, people don't like people. I've said this before. I think people like people to do do well, be successful, but don't be too successful. People get a bit funny when you go a little bit far. Not like well, there's no limit, is there? But when people do really well, I think people they sort of have a, a thing against that, and I can't really figure out what it is. Well, I don't know whether it's. I suspect it's not unique to Cornwall, but. And I'm allowed to say this because born and bred in Cornwall, nobody's more Cornish than me, nor indeed more proud of it. Um, and, uh, and Amanda suggested buying a house in Devon a little while ago, and I nearly had a stroke at the thought. <laughs> um, so I'm able to say this. I think that on occasion Cornish people can be quite bigoted. So they can, they can cover the nice things or they can say positive you know, give positive commentary about what people can do, but then all of a sudden when they do it, it appears to be on occasion a bit too much. And I don't know where that comes from. It was prevalent when I was growing up. I came back and it is no different. I think to be fair to the Cornish people, they have an expectation, which I think is reasonable, that you demonstrate that you are of a certain character and that perhaps you deserve to have had the good fortune that you have. In other words, if you behave like an arse, then they're not gonna like you very much. And if you behave with a measure of, uh, of humility and respect, which quite frankly, everybody should do anyway, then they will gradually accept you. And that's been the story for me. When I first came back, uh, it took me a few years before I got involved more in, in the more 
um, community aspect, but one of the first things I did was adopt Penzance Cricket Club, which has fallen on very hard times, not won a trophy for 35 years, didn't have enough youngsters playing cricket, facilities weren't good. And that was a cricket club that kind of saved my life in my teenage years. So I got back involved. Long story short, we published a 10-year vision all about the community, all about the cricket club, all about getting new young boys and girls out there and playing sport. And the response I got from that in the first year from other cricket clubs was nothing short of shocking. Uh, yeah, I know. Yeah, um, and and that I I couldn't comprehend. Um, perhaps if I'd had my time again, I, I would have had the same. Well, we definitely would have had the same vision, done the same things. I just wouldn't have communicated it. Hmm. And that of itself is a bit of an indictment because what's wrong with communicating the fact that you're doing something good? Yeah, I think I think um, like there's a lot of like there's a lot of Chinese whispers, and people don't unless you really understand what's going on. People create their own ideas. Um, you, you could see that from like the community that people didn't have really an idea of what was going on. No, and that, but that was the point of communicating it was yeah. to create you know that clarity for people and to and ideally to get them engaged and to, to get them to contribute you know in terms of time and and whatever. Uh, but often, if people perhaps the point is is rather if people don't truly understand then there's a danger they'll make up the answers. Yeah. And I think that is very prevalent in, in rural communities. Mm. And we are kind of slightly divorced from the rest of the UK, it's sometimes in a good way, sometimes in a bad way. So the response to that as my first initiative, if you like, for the community was disappointing. To be fair, over the years, as people have understood more and seen the very positive things that we've delivered, not just in terms of Penzance Cricket Club, but also in terms of um, the county side, in terms of the community, uh, people are buying into it more. But there are still some laggards out there who just think it's funny or rewarding to knock it and to do anything they can to reduce, if you like, the sort of moral stand that we're taking for club, county, community. Yeah. And we've, we've, and it's not just about money, but we've probably donated circa £50,000 now to wider Cornish cricket, apart from the investments that we've made in our own club. Uh, and, yet, and yet sometimes that's still not good enough. No. Albeit, I have to say that from the players' perspective, from the players in the sides that we, that we play, with one or two exceptions, every player has been first class and every player has, in the opposition sides, has treated me with respect and and a courtesy and a level of banter, which you expect. Yeah, and I love all that. That's yeah. fine. But some of the spectators um, around Cornwall have been less it's, than kind. I think it's, it's funny, isn't it, how, you know, Cornish people complain there's no, like, opportunities or... Um, there's, you know, lack of funding, there's lack of help. Um, and then when that's available to some degree, um, people, someone wants to help and make a difference, they turn their nose up at it. It's, well, not everyone, but some people do because they like to, people like to stay, people don't like change, do they? Some, not everyone, some people do, but some, some people just do not like change. Um, they like to be set in their ways. Um, more of the older generation, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, that's yeah, and I think it is. I think it is a, a generational thing, and I'd like to think that the younger people coming through 
are are seeing um, past that that historical bias that you that you can see. Uh, but that goes back to my point about you know, and you just summed it up about some of the bigotry that you see. Don't don't complain about a lack of resource and don't complain about a lack of support and don't complain about people taking and not giving and then you find somebody that comes along and does all of those things but you still complain mm. well there's, there's no there's no sense to that no no um so obviously you know you, you've done a lot of support for cornish uh, cornish cricket sorry um and especially Penzance. You've got a beautiful pavilion that you've had built um, and the ground's looking amazing down there now. So I've played there for years um, and, well, played against them. Um, and I can definitely say that place has come on leaps and bounds from, you, you know, 10 years ago. Yeah, we're fortunate. We, you know, because of, of my involvement, we've got a full-time groundsman. Yeah. And many other sides aren't as lucky as that and you know that's so if you go there and the ground doesn't look quite the ticket or the wicket's not quite as good as, as you think it should be one has to respect the fact that they've got volunteers who mm. have you know got day jobs and doing their best to to um, to work in the evenings and deliver what they can uh, so albeit we've we've tried to contribute um, in terms of ground restoration schemes etc to that as well and we have contributed chunks of money towards um, helping other sides to do that so this is not just about Penzance if we, if we just take the cricket world as part of the things that we try and do to give something back it's also about the mantra is at Penzance club county community mm. um, and those are the three things that we focus on and I think we've delivered benefits uh, for, for all three. So um, obviously not only the cricket that you've uh put your time into but uh you've touched on earlier the stand for would you like to just get into what that is and well we if you if you think back to 20 minutes ago when i was droning on about arriving in london that that taxi driver and his wife gave me a chance that's all they were able to do mm. but they gave me a chance and so stand for the genesis of stand for was about creating some kind of vehicle to give other young people a chance just like I had. So if you look at the website, www.stand-4.co.uk, you will see a bunch of, of uh, examples where young people have needed a chance to do something. Uh, there's a natural uh, tendency to believe that those will always be health issues, but they're not. There's a couple of notable issues challenges that we've taken on which do represent health uh, difficulties but there's also other ones where people just needed somebody on their side uh, and actually those sorts of things usually take time but they don't take any money uh, so there was a case of, of Lauren a young lady who reached the age of 18 uh, Lauren has cerebral palsy she has a bodysuit which contains some of her tremors and enabled her to type and play football and do lots of other things. She was told by the local health authority at the age of 18 that she was now an adult and she wouldn't get a new suit. So she was growing, but she wouldn't get a new suit to fit her. No funds? No funding, and she'd have to buy it herself, and it was a lot of money, uh, which is absolutely ridiculous. Um, and all we did there was just pitch in with a little bit of muscle to the relevant... Uh, authorities and suggested that perhaps they might like to reconsider because it wouldn't look great in the mail on Sunday. Uh, 
it took us no money. It took us, with the help of Lauren and her family, 72 hours, and the job was done. So that just shows that all Lauren needed was a chance. Yeah. Um, and it was dead easy. Just a bit of support. Yeah. Yeah, it's and not always about financial support. No, it's not, not at all. And, and there have been some, some lumpy investments we've made into the charity, but there's also been some pretty low-cost ones like Lauren. But to be honest with you, the, the reward is just the same. Yeah. Do you, is that something that you get a lot from, is helping people? Well, like I say, it, it sounds too holier than thou, but there is, and, and as I gave the example earlier on, people will know on a day that they have helped somebody else and done a good job and looked in the mirror afterwards. It's made them feel really cool mm. and I, I defy anybody however bad they are whether they've been incarcerated for 30 years for doing something dreadful we are all human beings and we enjoy if we can helping other human beings and seeing a good result mm. yeah definitely um, <clears throat> what would you what sort of advice say we've gone through this just before the podcast about you know people needing to create their own opportunities down in Cornwall. Um, there is a lack of, I guess, backward times and um, there's a, a sort of, we seem to be a little bit forgotten about down here, I think. Um, not in all cases, but, you know, people do want to be successful. People do want to make something of themselves. Um, and there's a lot of local little businesses. Um, I think it's important to support local business. Um, what sort of advice would you give to someone who wants to set up a little business um, and get them on their feet? What sort of advice would you give them? I think the world is full of people who talk about, I want to run my own business. We meet them all the time. Uh, you see them in the pub all the time, I think. At that stage, you have to ask yourself what you want from running your own business. And by the way, I don't think there's necessarily right or wrong answers. You might want to just be autonomous, but not earn any more money than you're earning now. In fact, you might be happy to be autonomous and be your own boss, but earn a bit less because actually that makes you feel happier in your life. That's fine. You may want to you know, take over the world a week on Tuesday. That's equally fine. Mm. But I think before you start, you've got to be absolutely clear about what it is that you're trying to achieve because people go off and they spend their hard-earned savings and they put in a huge amount of time into constructing something which ultimately either a isn't what they really wanted in the first place but they got a bit excited in the pub yeah or b doesn't deliver what it is that they thought it should deliver and what happens then is two years later, those people have wasted all their money and waste a lot of time and end up going back to where they were. So nothing wrong with taking on the challenge and nothing wrong with taking your chance, but give yourself the best opportunity by being clear at the very outset what it is that you want to deliver. And it doesn't have to be defined by scale or size or money. It can be defined any way you want it to be defined as long as you have clarity about what success looks like. Yeah. You have to be honest with yourself to start with. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so have you got any plans for the future with yourself? Um, anything business-wise? or? Well, I'm, I'm still doing some bits and pieces. We've got um, a property development company. Um, the 
guy that I've known since the age of five called Treve Lacey. His dad was captain of Penzance Cricket Club and captain of Cornwall when I played there. So Treve and I have known each other for a long time. So we're doing some property development work. Um, we've just closed the sale, or the purchase rather, of um, the Matt Haven Hotel in Marazion, uh, which should fall on bad times and which will now be, it's already derelict. So we'll demolish it and put uh, some new uh, housing there. So that's going well. Um, I'm invested in a company called Startle, which delivers music services to retail and hospitality brands, which is very interesting. Uh, and some other bits and pieces that keep me interested um, and often on occasion help other young people develop their own business from startup. So there's a target company called Target Agency in Penzance, which is a, a digital marketing agency run by Josh, run by Josh yeah. Fletcher, yeah. Um, which I helped Josh start. Um, he's now set free. Um, he's repaid the capital I lent him to to start off with and and the business is flying and that's the sort of thing that turns me on now because going to your point there was a young very talented young person who had uh, a great idea but didn't really have the wherewithal to to get it going Um, and we helped with that and now he's flying free and doing very well that's awesome yeah well thank you very much for coming on today Neil you're welcome it's been a pleasure Um, I think yeah and plenty of people will be uh, listening to this and getting plenty from it. So, um, yeah, thank you for coming on. Well, if, um, if anything I said amongst all the um, droning on is of value <laughs> or strikes a call with anybody, then uh, it's been worth half an hour of my time. <laughs> thank you very much. Okay. Cheers. Cheers.